Esther chapter 9, if you would. We're going to take a uh, pretty ambitious jump. I'll be reading a lot, and I'll be using a lot of Scripture for you to support the things that we're talking about. So after, uh, uh, Esther chapter 9, I'll get it out in a minute. Um, we're going to be looking at that. And I want to, we're going to read the whole uh, passage, chapter 1. You'll look at the outline and see that there in front of you. But I want to start with verse 1 and use that as kind of a, a summary, a jumping off point of this message, and indeed a summary of the entire book of Esther. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now, Try to put yourself there. That's one of the challenges of reading Scripture. It seems like a dead book, a you know, historical book, and that's all. This was, this was reality, and you're going to see the word that day as we read this in, in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, does that ring a bell to you? Back in chapter 3, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. Now, just, just stop there. Because this was a very, very dark day. Look at the details. It's been said that sometimes it's darkest right before the storm. You've got to get a picture of this, and I'll read this in the next phrase, but the enemies of the Jews were preparing themselves. They were ready to pounce on every Jew in the world. You, you've just got to understand that. With their weapons in their hands, read on, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. The final seconds are ticking away. Now, I, I, I just, as I read this, and I've thought about this this last week in particular, imagine that you're sitting there and you know that there is a decree of death on you. Today, Without some kind of intervention, and we already know, overlaid on that decree of death is a decree of life, and we're going to see that come to fruition in just a few moments as we read through this passage of Scripture. But imagine you're sitting there, and there might be some kind of question going on. See, it's one thing to be fearful of a test, students, that you're going to have tomorrow, or something going on in your life going in to see the doctor this next week. It's totally another thing to know that today, unless there is divine intervention, you are going to die. That's the picture of chapter 9, verse, verse 1. We're talking total annihilation. It's not just you as a Jew as God's chosen people. It's every one of God's chosen people. And you have to ask the question that we've been asking all through this study of the book of Esther, what in the world is God up to? His name is never mentioned in the book, but you can see if you've been listening to the sermons that His fingerprints are all over it. 
By the way, I haven't had anybody ask me this today, but uh, typically on any given Sunday, one of our children, usually it's one of the third or fourth graders that I have the privilege of co-teaching with several others in our Awana ministry on Wednesday night, but they'll come up to me and, Pastor Marty, how's it going? And again, I've told you this, I'll launch into how my week has been, it's been a busy week and all the rest, but what they really want to hear me say is what I've said over and over on Sunday morning, everything is going according to plan. Really? Now, remember that, that Esther is historical, but it's also redemptive. It stretches all the way back, all the way back to a promise that God made. Do you remember that promise? He made it to a guy named Abram, and later he changed his name to Abraham. And he set him apart, and he said, I'm going to do something in you. And I want you to see the promise that he made first. And he's going to reiterate the promise later in chapter 15 of Genesis. And then through, through the, the rest of the, the patriarchs, he's going to make the same promise over and over again. Look at what he says to Abram, who at this point does not have any kids and he says to him, I promise, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Then he gives a top line and a bottom line. I love this. This is a great missional text, by the way. I will bless you and I will make your name great. Now, remember, these are Jews in chapter 1. Do you think maybe they're going back to this and wondering, okay, God, what, what, what's giving with this? I will bless those, uh, no, let me finish that, the top line, just like I said, I will bless you and make your name great. Here's the bottom line, so that you will be a blessing. Remember, we said this is redemptive. This whole thing points to the coming of Christ and the salvation that he gives. I will bless, this is an important part of the promise, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. That's a strong word. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the whole book of Esther has to do with God keeping his promise to send the Messiah through the Jewish people. And if Haman, who's now dead, if you remember the story, if he has his way with his edict, which is still in effect, then the promised Messiah will not be born. If the Jews are wiped out, it won't happen. Here's a question, and, and here's where we get, um, we divide between just a sermon and what the preacher says and, and what we're doing to take it inside of our own hearts and, and it be truly transformational. Will God keep his promise. Well, we already know. He kept his promise to the Jews. We're going to read about their deliverance today. Ooh, it, it's gory. It, it's, really, it, it's, uh, it's really something. We're going to see that in a minute. But the bigger question is, will God keep his promise to you? And some of you are out there and you're wondering that. You really are. And here's another thing. Sometimes you're looking for the big miracle. God, I'm just waiting for you to part the Red Sea. You did it for Moses. Here I am. 
And you're going to discover that most often God does not work. He does sometimes, but He doesn't work in just the big miracles. Sometimes He works like in the book of Esther, never a miracle is recorded, just over and over again, these weaving together, this weaving together of all of these, could I call them ordinary details that God providentially uses? God's providence? You remember that definition? pro video, to see, God will see to it that His will will be accomplished. And by the way, that's not just in the book of Esther, that's in your life. No matter what age you are, no matter what's going on in your life. Uh, Proverbs 16.9, we have, we have used this verse over and over again in this study, so one last time in this study, it's going to show up again. I'd like you to see it, Proverbs 16, 9, the, the heart of man plans his way, and that's a good thing. You need to plan. You need, a, need to have a plan, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I started thinking about this last week, about doubting God. I'm talking about me. Doubting God to, to make sure that the details of life come through. And I, I started thinking, I have on, on my phone, which is right down there, on silent, by the way, I have Outlook, and I have all these appointments, and do you? Do you have that? Do you have a calendar? Maybe you use an old day timer or whatever, the, but, but, or maybe just a, a scrap of paper. But the thing is, if I can make appointments and pretty much see those appointments through, how much more can God and will God do that? I, I can't, I, I just can't tell you. I, I, I can't describe for you. It's, it's beyond my understanding how God weaves these things together. But He does. For our own ultimate good, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And for His ultimate glory. And we see this woven all the way through the book of Esther. Where... In the very beginning, here's this pagan, wicked, weak, vacillating king, always listening to his advisors, and they give him some pretty bad advice. He deposes his queen. We don't know, but the probability is he killed her, Vashti, took her out of the way. But then he has a beauty contest to pick a new queen, and he picks this young Jewish girl, and he doesn't know she's a young, well, he knows she's young, but not a Jewish girl. Her name is Hadassah, or in Persian, Star, or Esther. And she is providentially made the queen. And then through a variety of events, this, this young, compromising, assimilated young lady and her, her cousin who is raising her, Mordecai, they begin to take on more of, of, a, of a solid I won't say walk with the Lord, but just an understanding of what God is doing in their lives. And she comes to the place where she says, look, I've got to go in after this edict is made, and I've got to speak to the, to the king about this. And if I perish, I perish. And so we come up to today, and we see the end of that. Now, I said it a minute ago that if, uh, if we're going to read this and... and uh, you read it and you take it in, 
But you've got to understand, if this were a movie, and I do understand that Esther has been made into movies, but if, you, if this were going to be, this chapter were going to be made into a movie, it would be R-rated for the violence and the gore, okay? You've just got to understand that. This is some uh, pretty gruesome stuff that is going on. So let's look at the, uh, let's look at one more verse, Proverbs 16, 4 through 5, because this is what we're going to see. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Don't, don't try to, to just get beyond what the, what the Scripture says. This is what it says. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. The, be assured, he will not go unpunished. So here we go. Here's what we're going to see. The first part, you'll see it in your outline, chapter 9, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read the whole thing, all right? And I'm titling this part, The Great Reversal and the Reckoning for the Enemies of God's People. Pick up with verse 1. We didn't finish it. Let's go back and review it a little bit, and then we'll read quickly through the rest of this uh, uh, 16 verses. Uh, On that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the Jews, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those, now this is very important, who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house. This had, this had come through some providential events again. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. Men, women, children who took up the sword to come and kill the Jews were defeated. And they did as they pleased to those who hated them. It's very important that you see this part of it. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also killed, I'm not going to even try to pronounce all the names of the ten sons of Haman, verse 10, the enemy of the Jews. But they, get this, they laid no hand on the plunder. I said this a couple of weeks ago. My observation is that throughout the, the modern history of the Jews, that has been their tact. They, they generally do not attack unless attacked. They're not out for the plunder. And this is, they were given permission to do this, but the Jews did not do this. Verse 11, that very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther in Susa the citadel, the, kill, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then uh, have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? This is the king asking Queen Esther. It shall be granted you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Hold on, because Esther is no wimp. Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow. Give them another day. Also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be 
hanged on the gallows. Now, if you'll remember, that literally is impaled on some sharp poles. So the king's commanded this to be the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, very important, and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them. But they, again, laid no hand on the plunder. So between chapters 8 and 9, nine months have passed. And you would think, back, back up, if you will, to the last part of, of chapter 8. Look at what it says. Many uh, from the peoples of all the country uh, declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And you would think in, in, in the ensuing months, the nine months after chapter 8 and before the first verse of chapter 9, that the enemies of God would have wised up. They would have said, we need to take note. We, we need to, to back off of our going after the Jews. But they didn't. Now, this is amazing to me. And it's also very, very instructive. Do you realize, and this is an important teaching or doctrine from Scripture, that the enemies of God will always be the enemies of God unless something supernatural happens and they are converted? You know what this is? This is called the doctrine of total depravity. We don't like to think of it like this. We like to think of, of people in, in, in morally relative kinds of ways of being better or not quite as bad as other people. But you've got to see this. That, now, let's jump to the end of the book. I'm not talking about the book of Esther, but the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation chapter 16. When you would think, wouldn't you? That if people knew that they were going to be killed, even though they have these evil intents, that they would repent and believe. And I think it's instructive that in the book of Revelation, we find that even when during that time of great tribulation, that time of wrath being poured out, look at this, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over their, these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Do you realize that even in hell, and people know why they're there, that the people in hell are still going to hate God? And they will not turn unless they are born again. But there is a promise given, a promise given to those of us who are the people of God. No weapon that is fashioned against you will 
succeed. You will confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Here is the promise of God in the face of your enemies. You will ultimately defeat them. Now, this is not a promise like the Jews that you will not suffer attack. It's not a promise that you won't be struck by the weapons. And I'm, let me just expand on that thought. I'm talking about tests and trials and tribulation and even death. But it is a promise that your enemies will not ever ultimately defeat you. So the question is, what is your greatest enemy? Have you thought about that? What, what, what is the current, what is the current uh, cultural mantra say your greatest enemy is? Well, the thing I, every time I turn on the TV and it's almost in, in the news cycles, that the biggest enemy that we have is what? COVID. Or the biggest enemy, sometimes in Christian circles, we talk about the world or even our own flesh. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm my own worst enemy? The cartoon strip Pogo, he says, I, we have met the enemy and he is us. How about Satan? Is he your greatest enemy? Death? There, there is so much fear going around now about all of these things ultimately leading to death. But none of, listen, none of these are your greatest enemy, Christian. Your greatest enemy is sin. And this is why your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. This is the greatest enemy of mankind. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Why is sin your greatest enemy? Because it ultimately leads to death. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we read this just a few moments ago, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And we've got to see this, that we were not neutral against God. We were his enemies enemies. The soul who sins shall die. And then Romans, Paul adds, well, the wages of sin is death. This last week, somebody asked me this morning, well, how was your week? And I said, it was one of the busiest weeks that I've had. Two funerals, one here and one on Thursday in Denver. We went up for that. And, and then intersperse the news of, of two deaths. And I thought to myself, what a contrast and what a reality of what's going on that I want to share today from the book of Esther. On Monday, we celebrated the life of Esther Rani Kuduru, a life well lived. A life that at a point in time she came to know Jesus Christ 
And she died at 50, a relatively young age. And then on Thursday, we were part of a service in Denver, Colorado of a guy that I've gotten to know. He's, he helped to found Promise Keepers. He worked with an organization we are a part of, Alliance Defending Freedom. And again, a picture of a life well lived because at a point in time, he had come to know Jesus Christ personally, repenting of his sins, turning by faith to Jesus Christ. And all during that time, we, we, we got word of, and, and please hear my heart as I, as I say these things, Betty White passed away. She, she was truly, and, and people have said, they've just flowed with accolades, accolades after accolades. What a, she was America's sweetheart, a national treasure. Smiled a lot. And then, just yesterday, heard that another national treasure, these people lived a long time, Sidney Portier, not only a national treasure, but one who left a legacy, one who was a trend setter in his own field. And I thought to myself, I, do you ever think these things? And, and it, it, it really is something that we need to consider. Here you've got two funerals of two people who knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, as far as we can tell, there is no doubt they are with the Lord right now. Betty White, I, I don't know. Maybe she was a believer. Sidney Portier, maybe he was a believer. But here is what I want to say in, in relationship to that. When it comes to the end of the way for you and me, and barring the, the return of the Lord, it is going to come to that. It will not matter what accolades. It will not matter how many people came to your funeral. It will not matter how many flowers or all of the rest of the things that could be sent your way. The only thing that will matter is did he or she have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? There are only two futures. Luke 16, the story of the, the rich man and Lazarus, tells us that very, very clearly. Only two futures. The book of Revelation says it like this. Then I saw the great white throne. By the way, Esther is going to be there. Chuck's going to be there. Betty's going to be there. Sidney's going to be there. You, you and I are going to be there. I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were open. The dead were judged, each one of them, by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven.
Now, back to the story. That was an aside, but an important aside. The Jews, do you remember the story, this part of the, that we've just read? The Jews only counterattacked. They defended themselves from their enemies, and all of a sudden we have this little interlude. I don't know how that hits you when Queen Esther requested from the king that the ten sons of Haman be hung on a tree. What's that all about? God's arch enemies were displayed. Now, there, there are Old Testament scriptures that show that that was the ultimate end of the enemies of the people of God. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For cursed, and this is jumping to Paul's words in Galatians, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So, so here, here's what is happening here with the ten sons of Haman. This too looks forward to something, the open display of the dishonor and the punishment of the enemies of God. Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will, here's what's going to happen for those of us who are the people of God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son, but for the enemies of God, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The book of Esther points to the final absolving of the people of God from their enemies in the final display of God's enemies for an eternity. Let's move on to the second part of that. Chapter 9, verses 17 through 32, this is just simply too much to read through, but I'll leave it to you to do that later on at home, I hope, because what it gives to us is the great reversal is to be celebrated. This is the institution of the Feast of Purim, a joyful celebration of victory over the mortal enemies of people of God and the decree of death. You know, th this is interesting in doing this study of the festival of Purim in the book of Esther. This was not lost on people in history. Did you know that the Nazis in World War II would execute any Jew in a prison camp found with the book of Esther in their possession? Why? because it told the story of the people of God rising up and defeating their enemies. Yet here, the victory and the celebration are only temporary. 
It's to be as long as they are Jews, and every one of these Jews would at some time die. But what it does is prefigure a celebration that believers, that's us, made up of Jews and Gentiles, ought to be having right now and all through eternity, where Jesus, the Prince of Peace, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, will come and He will reign forever and ever. Not by destroying human enemies, but by destroying the hostility between us and God. There's another thing too. It ought to be you and me instead of the sons of Haman. It ought to be you and me hanging on that tree, but it's not. God took his own son and displayed in him the punishment for our sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why we sang a few moments ago, in Christ alone. It should have been us cursed on that tree. But Jesus took our punishment for us. Now, I don't know that I can prove this from Scripture. I looked for it, but I do have this as an assumption. Of all of the festivals of the Jews, I believe that Purim, the celebration of God's people's victory over their mortal enemies, will be celebrated throughout eternity. Here's the thing. It ought to be celebrated every Lord's Day. It really ought to. If we can come in here with only the idea that this is a religious pep talk, then that's one thing. But if we can come in here with that, that realization that it is all of us who should be on that tree and that Jesus has taken our place, and He has taken our punishment, and we have victory over our enemies, we ought to be Purim people every Lord's Day. And by the way, I think I can kind of show that from Scripture. The book of Revelation 19 verses 1 through 3. Look at what is being celebrated right here in heaven. And I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Now watch what they're celebrating. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. Second part of that, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her blood on his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And I don't know that I'd ever read that particular passage of Scripture with the realization that we will be celebrating our salvation because that is a part of who God is, but also we will be celebrating not only His mercy, but His justice. Last part, 
And here's some of the personal application that grows out of this. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. There are only three verses in the last chapter and has to do with the great reversal. Elevates our peacemaker and our mediator. Here's what the story ends with. The story ends with the reality that God uses nobodies to impact the course of human history and even ultimate destiny. Does that surprise you? Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the the strong. And, and over and over again, that's what we see throughout the history of the Bible. For example, God uses a, a murderer and a shepherd, I'm talking about Moses, to deliver his people out of Egypt. He uses a rebellious prophet, Jonah, to preach to and to deliver Nineveh from destruction. He uses a lustful man named Judah this is so interesting. A conniving daughter-in-law named Tamar. And then he also uses a prostitute named Rahab and a once pagan woman named Ruth to all be in the lineage of the Messiah. And in our story in Esther, he used weak Mordecai in compromising Esther to deliver the Jewish people, not only them, but to also secure the coming of the Messiah. Mordecai becomes the man of the moment, but Jesus will become the king of the ages. And I love this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Here's the bottom line, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message for all of us, who knows that God has not brought you to this juncture in your life, in your family, in your country, in your world, for such a time as this. Rather than just lamenting the things going on around you, we need to celebrate that God wants to use each one of us. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you how your word speaks to us. I thank you that you have told us through the book of Esther, throughout the book, how you work with your divine providence. I thank you that you are putting together the events in my life and in the life of those who are in this room and those listening online to work uh, what only you can do according to your good pleasure. Father, thank you that in everything you are redemptive. You're drawing us closer to yourself through the power of your Holy Spirit and the efficacy of your word. And I pray now that today, if there is anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day when they realize that they are enemies of you, the Most High God, that they would turn away from their sin, that they would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be eternally one of your children. 
We thank you for this and pray now that as we close out this service that we would go forward realizing that truly God has placed each one of us where we are for such a time as this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.